is Arif Katra, and I'm the host of Voices Worth Listening To. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about diversity, stories that I hope will make you think and reflect on how we experience each other's differences. My goal is to encourage change in our individual perspectives and in the ways in which we live and work together. When we speak about diversity, equity, and inclusion, we don't often consider the role of privilege. The title of this episode, Privilege, Why Organizations Need to Pay Attention. Most of my friends and family know that I'm not a big fan of dogs, but no one ever asks me why. In fact, many people are surprised to learn that when I was a kid growing up in Bea, Tanzania, a beautiful hill town in the southwest of the country, we had a dog. His name was Tommy. He was an important member of the family. He was a watchdog as much as a pet. And I remember stories of how when I was born, my mom took me to Tommy so he would realize that I was the newest member of his family and not something to eat. The reality of most Indians from East Africa is that we come from humble beginnings, and some would argue that when we made the trek from Gujarat or Kutch, we were among the poorest of the poor, looking for better opportunities in a far-off and mysterious East Africa. That was certainly true for my family, maybe even truer than for most. You see, in India, it's common to have a last name that is indicative of your profession or caste. If my name were Arif Machivala, then I would have come from a line of fishermen, but my name isn't Arif Machiwala. It's Arif Kachra. And Kachra? Well, Kachra means garbage. So like I said, among the poorest of the poor and part of the significantly marginalized, probably the furthest one can get from privilege. But my great-grandparents had loads of courage and very little to lose. After they moved to Tanzania, my paternal great-grandfather did well. He traded goods and operated a retail storefront and slowly built a small fortune, at least by his standards. He was overjoyed. His family finally had disposable income, and his sons and daughters had a comfortable life. My grandfather... His oldest son, Mamdali Abdullah Katra, married my grandmother, Fatma, and they had three kids. Their relationship blossomed in the 1930s, and it was modern by most accounts. My grandfather played tennis and took his wife to the movies and out for dinner. That was pretty rare in those days, but they loved one another very deeply. See, my grandfather's biggest strength was how much he loved and cared for his family. Sadly, it was also his biggest downfall. When my grandfather died at 55, he was certain his brother, who took care of the family money, would give his share to his wife and kids. They'd be taken care of. But that didn't happen. When my grandfather died, his brother gave nothing to my grandmother. She didn't even have enough money to pay for the funeral. She had to borrow that money. 
she was left with debt and three young children. She had to feed them, but she had so little. She was desperate, so she did what she could. She was a great cook, so she would sell snacks door-to-door. She could sew, so she repaired people's clothes and made portable mattresses that she also lugged one door to the next. These were less than jobs, and they paid like it. But at the end of most days, not every day, but most days, she would have enough to feed her kids. She would go to the open market around 5 p.m. to buy a little meat so she could make a highly watered-down sock, kind of like curry. See, 5 p.m. was the time butchers sold their scraps to dog owners because what was left was really only suitable for dogs. And with that meat and mostly bones, my grandmother fed her children. See, it's not that I don't like dogs. It's that they remind me of the underside of privilege. But the story gets better. My father, Musa Katra, becomes a mechanic to help his mom support the family. Sure, his dreams of becoming a lawyer were stolen, much like his inheritance. But he marries my mom, Shuli Katra, and they love one another. And together, they immigrate to Canada. They work very hard, and they save every penny. I remember that as a young immigrant family, we almost never went out to eat. McDonald's? That was a rare treat. And Christmas? Well, that was hard work. See, my mom had figured out a long time ago that Canadians love samosas. So at Christmas, we sold samosas. Thousands and thousands of them. My brothers and I went to school and got good educations. And although we had to do it on loans, halfway through the repayment process, mom and dad used their life savings to pay off our outstanding debts. Fast forward a few decades, and today, life is comfortable. My brothers operate our family business, and I've had a rich professional life. But when I look back to my own professional trajectory, I was surrounded by privilege. I started my career in management consulting, moved into investment banking, and then became a VP of marketing in the transportation sector. I got my PhD in strategic management and became a faculty member. I went on to establish an executive development center in India for the Richard Ivey School of Business to becoming the Dean of Arts and Sciences at the University of Central Asia. The people I worked with, my friends, my professional colleagues, they didn't share my background or my story. Their growing up was different from mine. And I've never told my story with any great detail to even my closest friends. Because I learned early on that in business and even in life, privilege is valued. And pedigree Well, that's a word we use to positively describe people and show dogs. But poverty, marginalization, well, that's something we hide. Truth be told, I'm the result 
of these stories and experiences of marginalization. I remember being in a classroom with faculty at Ivy, and we were discussing the role of character in decision-making. Our guest was Arkady Kuhlman, previous CEO and chairman of ING Direct. At the time, he was the chair of the Ivy Advisory Board. We were speaking about character and decision-making when a bright, clearly well-to-do MBA student, let's call him Jay, says that when he approaches decision-making, he is calm and judicious. He is always fair, critical, rational, and willing to do things even if they're not popular. But he is careful to behave in line with organizational policies and practices. He is passionate about success, but highly collaborative. Faculty provided their feedback, and then it was my turn. Here's what I said, and it came from the heart. Jay, to be honest, I'm jealous. When I think about what has made me successful in business, it's three things. I'm pushy, I'm not afraid of losing, and I'm committed to the greater good. And hell, once in a while I break rules. I'd like to say that I'm judicious and collaborative. I try to be, but I fail as much as I succeed. I finish, and Arkady gets up and says to Jay, pointing at me, this is honest. This is what character looks like. Not a list of aspirational mantras, but real people making real decisions, drawing on their life experience. I'd hire him any day of the week, Arkady says. You know why? Because life has beaten the crap out of him, and he knows how to get up. It was a bit unfair to Jay. I mean, I had 20 years on him, and a very different life journey. But the point was interesting. You need the Jays of the world, but you also may benefit from some gutras. You know, people who don't come from privilege. In today's world, where organizations are paying more attention to diversity, equity, and inclusion, we think about racial, cultural, and gender diversity, but we tend to think much less about privilege-based diversity. So I did a little research and found that organizations who are forward-thinking in their approach to DEI, they acknowledge the importance of diversity related to educational opportunities, income levels, and socioeconomic status. But rather than see these privilege-related forms of diversity as strengths, they tend to frame them as sources of stress, mental health issues, physical health issues, and barriers to performance and functioning, both in the workplace and in life. I was shocked. My story of marginalization may be raw and unfiltered, but it's not a weakness. It doesn't prevent me from performing. It doesn't create stress in my life. It created me. Now, I'm not saying that's true for everyone, but it's true for many people, especially those trying to climb the corporate or nonprofit ladder or those trying to get a venture capitalist to see the value in their million-dollar idea. So what does this mean for organizations? They face three challenges. One, how should organizations think about privilege-related diversity when it comes to recruiting and promoting people? Two, what questions will allow them to determine if privilege or lack thereof has shaped a candidate positively? And most fundamentally, three, 
Why should organizations care about privilege as an important source of diversity? Are there benefits of having privilege-related diversity among your key decision-makers? Let's look at question one. How should organizations think about privilege when it comes to recruiting and promoting people? When trying to understand the role privilege may have played in a candidate's life, I identify five archetypes. One, the network candidates. These candidates have gone to good schools, live in upscale neighborhoods, and have acceptable work experiences. They're not great leaders or entrepreneurs, but they know a lot of the right people and tend to have very well-connected family members and friends. They give off the vibe that eventually they're going to end up in leadership. Two, the pedigree candidates. These candidates have gone to the top schools. They've been given leadership opportunities early. Their career progression is typical, but exemplary. They know powerful people and have rich and deep networks of contacts. They come from means and have a finesse about them that's palpable. They fit all our biases around good leadership, and they seem leadership-ready today. The third privilege-based archetype I've encountered are what I call the exceptional candidates. These are just like pedigree candidates, except that their career progression is atypical, exceptionally interesting, and wrought with courageous risk-taking. Four, the fighters. They went to average schools, except for their highest credential. They've had a decent set of work experiences, except for their last job or two, where they excelled, where they were given loads of responsibility, an appropriate title, and where they made measurable impact. They don't look the part, often don't come from means, and have had to fight for every achievement. I think this is my archetype. And finally, the fifth privilege-based archetype, the innovator. These candidates are not impressive because of their educational background or their work experiences. They often come from very humble beginnings. Their exceptionality is in their ability to come up with great ideas and bring those ideas to fruition in a way that is exceptionally impactful. They don't just excel at ideation, they excel at implementation. They don't look that great on paper, but they look exceptional in practice. So what do these archetypes mean for organizations? Organizations need all five in a management team, especially if you want your organization to lead the future. Today, the level of homogeneity in leadership teams is staggering, especially when it comes to privilege-related diversity, in that there's a huge deficit of fighters and innovators in leadership teams, and that weakens organizations. The second challenge organizations face when it comes to privilege-related diversity is what questions will allow them to determine if privilege, or lack thereof, has shaped a candidate more positively. When interviewing candidates, both from within or outside the organization, interviewers do three things. 
deep dives into the CV, scenario and case-based questions, and behavioral questions. Asking questions from these categories is expected, but it won't give you any insight into how privilege-related diversity has made a candidate stronger. To tap into this, we need a new category, life questions. What was the hardest challenge your family has dealt with, and what was your role? Have you ever felt marginalized based on something that was outside your control? How did you handle it? Have you ever felt like you don't fit in at work? What did you do to change that? Have you had the experience of not having almost anything to having almost everything? What was that journey like? What is the most unfair thing that has happened to you? And what did you do about it? What are your thoughts on the relationship between privilege and performance? What do these questions tap into? They allow you to evaluate a candidate's resilience, perseverance, ability to relate to the other, their level of selflessness, thoughtfulness, and passion, the breadth of their views, and the authenticity and courageousness of their voice. Key benefits of privilege-based diversity. The last question I want to tackle is why should organizations care about privilege? My assertion is that if most of the decision makers and leaders in your organization come from privilege, then you're subjecting yourself to grave blind spots in developing and implementing strategy. Now, I'm not saying that if you come from privilege, you shouldn't be in leadership positions. I am saying, however, that some people in your leadership team should not have had the benefits of privilege. It makes the team stronger. Why? Leaders who've not had the benefit of privilege are one, they're better at managing risk because they have the experience of life journeys that are wrought with truly tangible ups and downs. Two, they tend to have wider networks of people from different professional, personal, racial, and cultural backgrounds, aka wide networks of interesting and uniquely talented people. Three, they are more willing to make investments to future-proof your competitive advantage because they understand what it means to lose what you value. Four, they are more resilient when faced with setbacks because resilience often defines their life journey. Five, they tend to understand the importance of building trusting close relationships, how to build them and how to leverage them, not as an exercise in networking, but as a matter of survival. Six, they realize and behave as though change is the status quo because they've experienced firsthand that success and change go hand in hand. Before I share number seven with you, I want to share some audio from Up TV involving Metro Atlanta Boys and Girls Club's kids from low-income families, some of which aren't even able to afford a Christmas tree. This year for Christmas, what are you hoping to get? A computer. Big, giant Barbie house. A trophy case. Xbox 360. Minecraft Legos. What do you think your mom or dad want for Christmas? My mom would probably want a ring. She's never really had a ring. 
Jewelry. She loves jewelry. A new TV. So, we actually did buy an Xbox 360. What in the world? I wanted this! Okay, and you, you really got this for me? A new laptop. Wow! It's a necklace! So we also bought a necklace because you said you also wanted to get a necklace for your mom or your auntie. The catch is that you can either get a gift for yourself huh? or you can pick a gift for your mom and dad. I need you to pick one. Now, now before you answer, oh, I bet that's hard. Is that a really hard question? Mm-hmm. What gift do you pick? I choose this. I gotta go with the ring. What gift do you pick? That one. That dress. I'll choose this for my mom. It's a really tough question. I'll give him this. You already know? Tell me why. Because Legos don't matter. Lego, your family matters. Not Legos, not toys, your family. So, it's either family or Legos, and I choose family. I get gifts every year from my family, and my mom don't get anything. If I get a laptop, my mom will get something. She helps me when I'm sick. She helps me with my homework. She gave me a house to live in. They look out for me and do stuff for me, so I need to get back to them. See... When you don't have the benefit of privilege, you learn to put others before yourself. A necessary characteristic of successful leaders, but sadly, a key deficit among modern day leadership teams. I hope you'll join me again in a few weeks by subscribing to the podcast. And I especially hope that today, The time spent listening to this podcast made you feel that this was a voice worth listening to. If you would like more information about my work in diversity and strategy, please visit my website at www.strat-ology.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. The music in this podcast is from the Toronto Tabla Ensemble. To find out more, visit torontotabla.com. That's the word Toronto and the word Tabla, T-A-B-L-A.